Well, good morning, church. Uh, This morning's message, I just need to say, is intended to bring great hope to each of us and uh, to give us hope for those who have passed on. I'm going to present some things today that I know will cause some of you to think, and it will frustrate a few of you, Uh, but I encourage you to open your hearts and minds to the Word of God in a new way today. At the end of the service, you don't have to agree with me. We will agree on some very key things. Everyone in this room who is a Christian, of any kind believes the same sort of few things. So, as I said in the book of Revelation study we did, at the end of the day, we're going to go back, have coffee, throw our arms around each other, and celebrate what we agree on, right? Amen. So, uh, I want to encourage you with this. We're in, obviously, uh, Thessalonians, and I'm so glad. I just, I'm loving this study. I'm sorry, it's, uh, we're not going to be in Christmas stuff uh, this week, or we've got two more weeks of this, but we'll have lots of Advent and carols. But it's not disjointed, as we learned last week, because the story, the grand narrative of God, just doesn't end in the manger, does it? <clears throat> it continues on with the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died a death that we deserved and, and uh, rose again triumphant over the grave ascended to heaven where he rules in a very real kingdom and who one day, as we've sung today, is coming back. He will create his wonderful new world and we will live for him forever, with him forever and with one another. So, here's the context. Are you ready? All right. Uh, After visiting Thessalonica, Timothy came back uh, to where Paul and... uh, and uh, Silas were, and he gave them a report. And one of the things about this young church was they were struggling to reconcile their understanding about the return of Christ and some of the recent deaths that had occurred in their church. They feared that those who died prior to Jesus coming back, and they thought he would be back, like imminently back then. They were afraid that somehow they would miss out on the great return of Jesus the gathering of God's people. And to make matters worse, there were false teachers that were actually adding uh, to the confusion. They were circulating a letter, actually, purportedly, to be, they said it was Paul who wrote it, but it wasn't. So you had a false letter being circulated, suggesting that the day of the Lord's judgment had already come. So they're not sure what to believe or what will happen to their deceased brothers or sisters or family members, or even themselves for that matter, and will they miss out on this great celebration at the end? And Paul's concerned that they learn some key things to stabilize their faith and enable them to express appropriate Christian grief when one of their brothers, sisters, or family members die, instead of this wild hopelessness that typified the mourning of the pagan funerals around them. So after addressing this sort of confusion, Paul then 
points them back to the most fundamental, fundamental and historic parts of their faith, the life and work of Jesus, and then points them forward to the promise of his glorious return. Now, Paul's going to use language, again, in similar ways that John did in Revelation. He's going to use some pictures and symbols. They are from Scripture, but they're able to help people to understand. Can you imagine Paul? He's going to try to explain something that no one's ever seen or thought about. It'd be like if someone who has been born blind, you're trying to explain to them color. How do you do it? And this is what was presenting Paul. He's going to be talking about this whole idea of what's going to happen at the end to people who have never experienced this. But he is concerned uh, to speak to his grieving church with a pastoral heart. And uh, he's not going to give a detailed, long, you know, theological expose on every detail that happens in the end. And it's not going to happen this morning either. Okay? You okay with that? <clears throat> so, this text won't answer every single question you and I have about uh, sort of the future events, but it's going to give enough to encourage us. So, I'm going to ask, I know if Lloyd prayed for me, let's just bow one more time very briefly. Lord Jesus, we ask, release your spirit, the teacher, and I pray you would teach us from your word. Give us eyes and ears to hear and see what you are doing and saying. And Father, I pray, though some new information might come to some, or contrary to what they believed was settled in their minds about what happens at the end, I just pray that you'd give them a moment to understand or at least consider. But at the end of the day, Lord, this is not a barrier to fellowship in this church. And we bind the enemy from dividing us over this. We all agree that you are coming back, that you will resurrect the dead, <clears throat> that you will create space for us to be with you for all eternity. This we agree on. This is our hope. And so I pray today, Lord, we wouldn't miss the great intention of this passage to encourage the church and give them hope. In your name I pray, amen. I will say this, though, theological ignorance will invariably lead to confusion, worry, and frustration. The fact of the matter is, and I'll just be gentle but firm here, Christians today seem to be theologically lazy in their biblical and theological understandings. I just got to say that. Young and old... Sometimes we just don't want to think and don't want to read or pursue that. But we'll sure read lots of other manuals and spend tons of time on video games and watching Netflix things. We can research all kinds of things, but when it comes to our faith, sometimes we back down. Because we think that, well, I just believe in Jesus and that's enough to get me into heaven so it doesn't matter. And that was never God's intention, nor is it his will for you. So... Church, I encourage us that we all grow. Because here's the fact. You and I, everyone in this room, are theologians. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a theologian. <laughs> now, here's the thing. You're all theologians. The question is, are you going to be a good one or not so much? 
See, the more we grow in our understanding of God and the application of his will, his ways, his purposes, and understand his word, the better theologians we will become and the more stability it will give in the development of our faith. And I'm telling you this, what is coming in our world, and as we get closer and closer to the time of Christ, everyone, regardless of your theological position, understands this, that time's pressure is going to be coming on the church, on the Christians. And if we don't have the internal fortitude, the theological understanding, and the strength of faith to stand, many will abandon the faith. And I'm not saying you need to become scholars. Please understand me. There are too many Christian scholars that are full of head knowledge and their lives don't show it. I'm proud of this church because your lives show it. Let's just make sure that our theological understanding and our biblical, you know, grounding, you know, supports and fuels that even more. But we will hinder our maturity in Christ. So here's our passage today. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. You know, maybe what I'll do is just read it, uh, and then we'll go back to it, okay? So, uh, again, I believe this firmly, that in my hands I hold a copy of the written Word of God. It's alive and powerful. As I read it, as I study it, as I apply it, my mind will be renewed my life will be transformed. My heart will be changed. And that's true for every one of you. So let's read together. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of the command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet sound of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, all of this is for what purpose? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let's uh, walk through this, okay? But we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers and sisters, he doesn't want them to be unaware and therefore open to be misguided or to be, uh, you know, uh, endure unnecessary frustration because we don't understand the faith. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now remember, many had died in this church and they've been taught about the second coming. Now they're frustrated. You've got a false letter circulating around, false prophets that are teaching and they're thinking, oh no, what's happening to them? God's, Jesus has already come, and they're going to miss out. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy did not want them to be uninformed about those, that is, Christ-following friends, brothers and sisters in the church who are asleep. Now, three times in our passage, Paul uses this whole idea of sleep. He's speaking of believers who have died. It's a euphemism for death. 
uh, it is, refers to the physical body of the deceased that looks like it's sleeping. It's used to show that death for the Christian is only temporary, as sleep is followed by waking up. So death for the follower of Jesus will be followed by resurrection. Now, Jesus spoke of this way when he talked about, remember his friend Lazarus, Martha, Mary and Martha's brother? And he, they got word that he you know, passed away and Jesus waits another two days, or that he was sick, Jesus waits another couple of days, he dies. And then Jesus tells him that Lazarus has fallen asleep and his disciples, they don't get it, right? They said, well, if he's sleeping, let's wake him up. And Jesus, so Jesus says, man, they're not getting this. No, and then he says plainly, Lazarus is dead. So he uses the word sleep to mean that he has actually died. It's not intended to teach, as some teach, that the condition of the soul between the interim period when someone dies and the resurrection at the end, this unconscious soul sleep, that's not what he's teaching here. The great reformer John Calvin said that the reference is not to the soul, but to the body, for the body the dead body rests in the tomb as on a bed until God raises it up. So Jesus' own, even his own references when he's referring to some of his stories or narratives in the Gospels, he makes sure he, under, he gives us hints that people are conscious. There's a conscious awareness after people die, either in joyful comfort or in sorrowful pain. Now notice what Paul does not say about people when they pass away, when they have friends that pass away or family. He does not say that you don't or won't grieve. He doesn't say that, does he? Grief is not a demonstration of weakness nor a lack of faith for the Christian. Rather, it's a revelation of love, of missing connection. And many of you in this room, you know this. You have grieved or even are to the, in this moment grieving the loss of someone. For those that know Ron and Marcia Weir from Baby, who were part of our startup team, uh, uh, Ron passed away this week. And Marcia is grieving. The kids are grieving, Shauna and Brittany. Yeah. Some of you know that grief. So Paul's not saying you ought not to grieve. Please understand that. That's a misinterpretation of the scripture. Jesus himself sanctified grief, and when he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and it says, and Jesus wept. So, he's not saying that, but he's saying we don't grieve in a certain way. It's not that we don't grieve. We don't grieve in a certain way. And what is that certain way? As those who have no hope. No hope of assurance, no hope of certainty beyond death, no hope of life eternal, no hope of being with Jesus, no hope of reunion with other Christ followers who have previously passed. You see, Jesus' followers grieve. True? Yes. But there's this very strange, almost supernatural buoyancy in our grief, isn't it? I can't tell you how much I miss my parents and my dad my mom. There's times when I'll just, when I let myself think about it, I just, I just get emotional when I weep. Is there any hint of a lack of faith in me? No. 
I know exactly where they are. I know I'll see them again. So there's this kind of weird, isn't grief for the Christian kind of strange? Like, we miss, we feel. But yet, there's hope there that just is buoyant. So why does Paul want them to know the truth about the faith of their believing relatives? Why do you think? Well, the high-level answer is he wants to encourage them. You know, they've been taught about this glorious return of Christ, and but Scott McKnight, theologian, says that they were scandalized by the death of believers, overwhelmed with the thoughts that their loved ones might be in grimy darkness or suffering or isolation or perhaps never seeing them again or saddened over the soul being separated forever from a recognizable body or especially worried that the dead believers would miss out on Jesus' return. So Paul's specific way he's going to encourage this is to ground them in a, in a truth that they know. Now, why is truth regarding the death and regarding death essential for Christ's followers? Why is it essential that they know it and believe it? They must know about the death, uh, why truth is essential for Christians when it comes to death. Why is it important? Because truth imparts hope and it influences our grief. We need to understand this. Knowing the truth assures us with confidence through Christ, changing the very nature of how we grieve. The essence of very real grief is changed by truth that's provided by and through Jesus. He takes them to verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's the cornerstone. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Paul roots the entire teaching of truth about what happens to believers when they die in Jesus and in the irreducible sort of, you know, core of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. This little sentence isn't just giving information about what happened in the past. It's revealing what is going to happen to everyone who is in Christ in the future. And he uses the word for. When he, says, when he starts out with for, it's actually a word that links with what he's going to say with what he wants them to know in the previous verse. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the cornerstone of our faith, even so, just as, in the same manner, just like Jesus was bodily raised from death, resurrected, even so, just like that, through Jesus, through his power, through our being united with him by faith, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, we're starting to get into some teaching. I, I, have a, I want to address it later. But some people interpret this in a certain way. I'm just going to let you know what, I'm just going to go through this, what I believe about this. When God says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, he will resurrect them too, just like Jesus. Their bodies will not remain dead. They will not be abandoned to the grave forever. Or as the New English Bible puts it, God will bring them to life with Jesus. And if God did not abandon Jesus to death, he will not abandon 
the Christian dead either. Oh, on the contrary, he will raise them as he raised Jesus. God will take them out of the grave, gather them to a returning Jesus and to each other. We good so far? Okay. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That he's saying this isn't his own thinking. This was actually coming from Jesus himself. Now it could be from something that Jesus taught or something, you know, all the revelations that the Apostle Paul received directly from the Lord himself. But this was on the Lord's authority, not his own opinion. He says, from the word of the Lord, we who are alive, that is, we who are living on this earth when Jesus comes back, who are left until the coming of the Lord, who have not been taken in death, believers are left here. Interesting, take note of that. Believers are left here until when? Say it. Oh. I thought we were yanked out of here, disappeared. Those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. will not receive their resurrected bodies and be reunited with Jesus before the brothers and sisters and family members who've already died in Christ. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with the cry of the command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the Lord himself, it's a personal coming, a bodily return. He's returning in person, not sending a representative, not coming spiritually. Jesus himself is coming back. We must understand and believe this, friends. It's the great hope of the Christian. The Lord himself is coming, and he will descend from heaven. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. He's trying to describe something that they've never known about. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to take a whole bunch of pictures from the, from the scriptures and try to describe this. I'm just going to say this, that I do not believe that Jesus says that Jesus is literally going to, is up above and will suddenly come down like this. Heaven, where Jesus presently is, isn't in a location somewhere up in space beyond the farthest star. Rather, it's in a different dimension. And what he's talking about is that, like, in fact, and elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul's describing the same thing to the church in Colossae, and he says this. He talks about when Christ's appearing. He doesn't use the word descending. He appears. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Jesus will appear, emerge, break in from the presently hidden world of the heavenly dimension into the visible realm with a cry of command, a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. All these found their, their uh, roots in the Old Testament. It's a summon. He's summoning both the dead in Christ and those who are alive. And the variety of this repetition just indicates how irresistible and overwhelming this summons is. 
And the dead in Christ will rise first. They will be given their new resurrected bodies, and so will we. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We who are alive when we return, so Gary Hinn, believers here on the earth when he comes, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord. And, the, and Paul is again referring to multiple Old Testament pictures to describe this. Daniel chapter 7 teaches about the Son of Man who will be coming in the clouds. That is, he'll be revealed, vindicated, and exalted. Clouds have always been a symbol of the immediate presence of God himself. In Exodus chapter 13 and 21, where they led them through the wilderness, on Mount Sinai, the clouds descended in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. The filling of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 45. The, the, during the wilderness wanderings again, Exodus 40, verses 36 to 38. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured, and there was appeared Moses and Elijah in front of you know, John and Peter, and he, he, they're seeing this. The, remember, the clouds cover it. You see, this is a picture, along with the scene that Rev, they were very familiar with in Thessalonians. You got this idea of the clouds of the presence of God, the immediate presence and manifestation of God, coupled with something that all of the Thessalonians would have known. They've seen this in their culture. When the emperor, Caesar, would come near one of his barracks. All When he came for a state visit, all of the politicians, all of the leaders, and all of the Roman citizens would go out of the city to meet him and come back celebrating his presence into the city. And Jesus' own teaching about being ready for the bridegroom in Matthew 25. He says, at midday they cry out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. He's using this idea, going out to meet and then coming back with him. And in fact, I read three different quotes by Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian in his book Antiquities, and he uses this very same language, talking about these, you know, you know uh, these great leaders, and the people would go out to meet him, and so they would come with him, celebrating his presence into the city. Now, taking the images of the clouds of manifestation and the picture of the you know, uh, this state visit, Paul is communicating that the vindicated, exalted Son of Man, Jesus himself, with all of the visible signs of his majesty and divine presence, will appear, will break into this dimension in the heavenly realm, from the heavenly realm, and both the dead and believers will be resurrected along with living believers, and we will, in new bodies, flock to meet him and return with him worshiping and celebrating his presence forever. Now, I admit to you that many of the details of this meeting are omitted. For example, in Corinth, he says that we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. There's things like that. But while the text doesn't give us everything about it, that's not Paul's intent here. We know that when Jesus appears as in the clouds of divine presence, he will come with the fire of judgment and purify the world. And what happens is that having purified and purged the entire world and cosmos with holy fire and divine judgment, he will miraculously transform the, the, you know, the, the heavens and the earth into his new heaven, his new world. 
and he will miraculously create and give brand new bodies fit for this new heaven and new earth to all who are in Christ, both the dead who are resurrected and those who are alive when he comes. And they're going to meet him in the air. Now, this is a reference that I personally believe is very symbolic. To use the phrase in the air was the dwelling place of devil and demons in those days. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says they were following the prince of the power of the air. And the fact that Paul employs this for where the Lord chooses to meet his saints is like on the home turf of every evil, wicked demon, just sort of putting it right in their face, showing his complete authority, victory, and mastery over them, utterly defeated. And so we will be with the Lord forever. His appearing, heaven and earth, the resurrected dead living believers are at last united and visibly present to one another from the, the heavenly dimension and the earthly in a new and eternal way. And the apostles' emphasis is on this unbreakable sort of solidarity with which the people of Christ will enjoy him and each other and which death is utterly cannot destroy this wonderful union. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is communicating to this young church and to all of us here this morning that we can be confident in God's future purposes for the Christians who have died and for ourselves who are still living. There will be grief, yep, of course because we love and miss him. But there's also hope. There will be a day, though, when God will bring utter justice, make all wrongs right, and all grief will turn into joy. Jesus will be central to that day, which will end with the unveiling of God's new world, where those who have already died and those who are alive will both be given transformed bodies and an entirely new transformed creation to celebrate with, with him forever. This is good news. So, my question to you after hearing this, is the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, teaching in this passage about rapture or about resurrection? For those of you who are new to church or haven't understood this, these two verses have had a huge influence in some circles that hold to what is called the rapture. Basically, it's a belief in some churches and Christians, they hold that at some point during this end times as we come near the end, this tribulation, Christians will disappear or be taken away from the earth. For all, half, some, they can't really decide. If it's pre, mid, post, or pre-wrath, they can't really decide that. But they disappear. Their belief is that they wouldn't have to face the hard times, what they would interpret as God's wrath happening on the world. To finish their theology, the raptured believers are then supposed to come back with Christ to rule with him after these three and a half years or f seven years, whichever, or a little bit at the end, and reign with him for a thousand years while Satan is locked up. And after a thousand years, Satan is released again to wreak havoc one last time until he's finally sentenced into the lake of fire. 
then all the believers are taken away from the earth again to live happily ever after in a 1,500 square mile cube somewhere in the space called heaven, and the earth and the cosmos are utterly obliterated, disintegrated, and cease to, to exist. That is sort of some of the core theology uh, that some who believe in the rapture also believe. The rapture then enables Christians to avoid living in the time of persecution and tribulation, but as a New Testament author or, or a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, this is one of their main Christian hopes, people being suddenly snatched out of their homes, cars, jobs, airplanes, and leaving the rest of mankind to suddenly be bereft and perplexed. And this letters to the Thessalonian church, I'm reading this because I want to be very, very clear with you this morning. The letters to the, New, the Thessalonian church and one statement that Jesus makes are the only New Testament passage that seem to teach that believers are raptured. But things are not always as they seem. I'm going to give you a few... Re are you okay out there? You know, I was meeting with some guys. Uh, I meet with a bunch of senior pastors, uh, two different ones, and this one was all CMA guys. And I, I said, guys, can I just ask you a question? And I put a, a situation, a theological question out to there. I've been stewing over this one for a long time. And they just kind of looked at me with deer in their headlights. I mean, these are like senior pastors. Like, and uh, it got them stewing. I said, don't you guys lay awake at night and think about this? Uh, anyway, so I, I know sometimes I can, sorry if I do this with you, but it's really, it's really important that at least for you to make an intelligent choice of whether you're going to believe in predispensational, premillennial, rapture of the church, end time stuff, you need to come to grips with these few things. First, if one believes that the, today's passage teaches a rapture, then you must believe, which is never stated in the scripture, you must believe in two returns Two second comings of Jesus. Because he comes to take them away, if you interpret this passage like that, and then he comes again. So you go back up to space somewhere and you rule with him, and then the problem the Bible doesn't teach two second returns or second comings. Here's another one. One wonders why the rapture never occurs in Jesus' own teachings about the signs of his coming, the day of the Lord. There is nothing about it in Matthew 24, 25, nothing in Mark 13, nothing in Luke 21. And these passages actually foretell, you know, all that's transpiring near the end, and he calls us to be awake and alert. The first level of sort of application fulfilled in those is in the historical events surrounding the the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Luke's account makes it very, very clear. Yes, there is another layer of application coming that you and I must be ready for, alert to. But here's the problem. Jesus taught believers not that they were to be raptured out of these difficult times, but rather he called them to endure until the end and they would be saved. There's one place where Jesus mentions a few quick scenarios where people are in twos. You know, they're walking, one guy's gone, the other's left. One guy, you know, others are grinding, and one's gone, the other's left. The assumption by rapture people, because it fits their, their theology, is that the people who leave are the believers. 
There's only one problem. In the parable of the talents, smack dab in the middle of all this, it's not the faithful who are taken away. It's the unfaithful servant who didn't do anything that has all of his stuff taken away, then he is taken away. We, almost have to, we also have to give thought that Paul, in many Paul's rest of his New Testament letters, never does he bring this up again, this rapture idea. Not to Galatia, not to Colossae, not to Corinth, not to Ephesus, not to Philippi, Rome, not even to the leader Philemon. But he always encourages the church to stand firm and persevere. And finally, in the book of all books about the end times, those who believe that it's all about the future, there is not one word, not one hint about the rapture. Rather, the continual call for the church to faithfully persevere right to the end, even to death, and they will be assured of their entrance into the kingdom and the new heaven, the new earth. So, is the Spirit teaching through Paul rapture or resurrection? I personally believe that the biblical weight is teaching resurrection. Now we can all agree on this. Life, not death, has the final word. Amid great grief at a funeral can be the celebration. The blessed hope of the Christian is the bodily return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and to live forever with him and all believers in God's new world. That we agree. And that's the great hope for the Christian. So when you're at funerals and you hear, hear you know, people talking about these passages, it's not just storytelling. It's deeply rooted in the resurrection of Jesus himself. And therefore, we have hope. The intent of this passage this morning is to encourage the living believers that their dead in Christ siblings are not extinguished, but will be raised to be with the Lord and with them. And it brings us hope. So I want to read this one last time. Would you read it with a new understanding, maybe? We want, don't want you to be uninformed, people of Summit, about those who are, have passed away, so that you don't grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through him, God will bring with him, will raise to life with Jesus, those who have died. And we declare this to you by a word from the Lord. It's not our opinion. We who are alive and are left until the great day where the Lord returns will not precede those who have died. They are not going to miss out. There's no advantage to being alive when Christ comes. There's no disadvantage to being dead when Christ comes, if you're in Christ. For both simultaneously, no partiality. The dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive will meet the Lord who is breaking in, who is appearing, and we'll be caught up together with them in his mighty presence to meet him. 
and we will always be with them. So church, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray.